Hi, my name is Pauline, and I'm a volunteer here at the Recovery Radio Network. Did you know that last year people logged into Recovery Radio more than 600,000 times and listened to over 875,000 hours of recovery? Please help us continue this mission of service to the recovery community by donating to our cause. Fire up your computer. Go to recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. It's that easy. Good evening, friend. My name is Jack and I'm an alcoholic. And I am very happy to be here tonight with you people. I flew in last night from uh, Kansas City. And the plane was three hours late because of mechanical difficulties. They had to tie one of the wings back on. And, and when I tell you I'm very happy to be here tonight, you can believe it. And if there's anybody here that works for TWA, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You sit on those stupid flying corpses, you know, or flying coffins. You see all them little men running around outside, grinning in the window that you putting the damn things back together again. I saw a lot of exchanging of money. I think they were taking bets on whether we would make it. I hate the fly. Flying is for the birds, as far as I'm concerned. But when Eddie called, or whoever called, and said, would I come, I have to say yes. Because I owe so much to Alcoholics Anonymous, you see. And I live in Kansas. I'm originally from New York. And I moved to Kansas, and that was a mistake. I'm very happy to be here, to be away from Kansas, too. <laughs> They're trying to educate me up there. I have a real smart-ass brother-in-law, you know. He owns a lot of cattle. And he keeps taking me out and showing me things and asking me, What is that, Jack? And to me, they're all cows. And when I say a cow, he laughed like crazy. And then one day he told me there's things like bulls, too, you know. So the next time I said, that's a bull. And he said, no, that's a steer. Now i got to find out what the hell a steer is. And it's a very strange place up there, very strange people. They don't talk. They sit down in the restaurant, and the waitress puts their breakfast in front of them. I don't know how the hell they order it. They never say anything. They just sit down. But I'm learning, you know. I get along anywhere, and I'm learning. I learned out. I learned why they bury cowboys with their boots on, but they can't get them off. That's why. Really. And you know why boots are always pointed? That's for stepping on cockroaches in the corners. Yeah. Every time I went into a drugstore, 
there were people there buying Preparation H. And I asked the druggist one day, I said, how come everybody uses Preparation H? Is that because they ride horses? He said, oh, no, no, they don't use it for that. I said, what the hell do they use it for? He said, they use it for people that are losing their hair. I said, you got to be kidding. He said, no. He said, it's wonderful. You rub it on your head if you got a bald head. And I said, does it grow hair? He said, no. He says, it shrinks your head to fit the hair you got. There's a lot of people here that can use that information. They got a lot of country western singers up there, you know. And my favorite is Loretta Lynn. And she sings good and she's nice people, you know. And she wrote the Al-Anon theme song. And everywhere I go, they say, Al-Anon hasn't got a theme song. I say, oh, she, they sure do. And Loretta Lynn wrote it, and she sings it, and the name of it is, Don't Come Home A-Drinking With Lovin' On Your Mind. You know. uh, I'd like to tell you a story about old Pat over in Ireland. Did you see my tie? Take a good look. Oh, my. What a relief. My wife forces me to wear that for the first three minutes of my speaking. I have to go to the bathroom, but they won't let me go. I hate to butt into this point. We have got a bona fide emergency. Would Sharon Goldsmith or Ray Nobles please come to the main gate up here? Up here. I would like to tell you a little story about an alcoholic in Ireland. Ireland is full of them, of course. And his wife, you know, she nothing, knew nothing about Alan on the poor thing. And she went to the priest one day. She said, Father, he's drunk again. And the priest said, Oh, my God, no. And she said, Yeah, he's drunk again. And the priest said, Well, I don't know what that we're going to do with him. He said, We tried everything. We've tried to scare him. We've tried to do everything with him. And he said, I don't know what to do to keep him sober. And he said, Mary, tell me. He said, The house that you live in is at the foot of a little lane, isn't it? And she said, yes, Father, it is. And he says, there's bushes on either side, right? And she said, yes, there is. He said, well, why don't you tonight put a big sheet over your head and get out into the bushes, you see. And when he comes home, jump out and scare him. Maybe that'll do it this time. So here's her poor soul is out there in the bushes at midnight waiting on himself to come down. And he comes down the road hitting both sides, and she's in the bushes with her sheet over her head. And he comes down the road and he gets within about 15 feet of her. And she jumps out and she waves her hand and she says, Eee, I'm the devil, I'm the devil. And he says, Oh, let me shake your hand. I married your sister. Well, I said when I stood up here that my name was Jack Brennan, I'm an alcoholic. And my name doesn't mean a damn thing, nothing. 
But the fact that I'm an alcoholic and I'm standing here talking to you people, it means quite a bit, believe it. Because I should be dead and I'm not. And I'm one of those few privileged people, members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I say few because we are few in number. When we figure 750,000 recovering alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous, and we compare that with the 12 or 16 million on the outside that have not yet found this program, then we are very few in number, believe it. And I stand here tonight only because of the grace of a higher power. And my friend upstairs does not love me any better than he loves you. And he does not love anyone any different from anyone else. And he loves us all equally well. And those few of us that are in Alcoholics Anonymous, I say are the fortunate ones, the lucky ones, the miracles, actual miracles. I believe that I'm a miracle. Because without this program of AA, I would not be here, I would be dead. And my name would have been a blight on the face of the earth. Because when I was drinking, I was a maniac. And this is the story of one alcoholic. And not necessarily a story that is severe or terrible. Because you see, as alcoholism is progressive disease, what happened to me could theoretically happen to anyone that's sitting out there. So if you came in a little earlier to this program than I did, that's fine. God bless you. It only proved that AA works better today than it did before. But it does not mean by any means that you have to go the distance that I did. But you can if you want to. The choice is all yours. The most amazing thing always happens to me at these conventions. I sit here and I look out and I see so many people and I wonder who the one individual is that I'm here to speak to tonight. Because I'm not so foolish to think that because I came here everybody is going to benefit. No, not true. But my friend upstairs does not waste time. He does not waste my time does not stuff me onto those stupid planes that come down here just for a lock. I'm here for a reason. I'm here because there's one individual sitting out there that has to hear what I have to say. And I'm so grateful to be able to stand here and talk to that one individual. The rest of you can sit there nice and quietly and listen. But that one individual, you listen good. Because I don't like flying and I gotta go back, you see. I saw a ghost from the past tonight. And when they read that fifth chapter as it used to be, it took my mind way back. And I think of AA, how that it was when I came in. And I think now of how that it's changed. And I think of the growth of AA then and the growth of AA now. They had to be doing something right in the old days, believe it, because the growth was phenomenal. And there was no easy way. And the alcoholic came into AA because there was no other place to go. It was the last stop. And I say that many of those things that that man read here tonight are still true.
you must get the attention of the alcoholic. And you must drive it home. And they say that I know must in AA. And I will go along with that to a point. But I say there are a hell of a lot of you damn well betters, you see. And I remember one time long many years ago that I was a dishwasher and a cook. Not to cook, but I made the coffee in a group in Brooklyn, New York. And it was my early time in AA. And into the meeting came an alcoholic, active, looking for help. And he was a big one. He was a big one. And he was a very disruptive alcoholic, too. And I was about to measure him and dump him. And somebody said, no, we don't do it that way no more, Jack. But the only reason I wanted to keep him around was so that I could help him. But he wouldn't keep his fat mouth shut, don't you see? And he was disrupting the meeting. So I took him into the kitchen where I knew everything is near in the kitchen because that was my domain. I was a coffee maker. And I literally stuffed him under the sink. And I said, now you stay there until the meeting is over and then we'll go home and we'll talk. And lo and behold, I walked in tonight and I ran into that individual. And he sits here tonight and I'm so happy that he's here. And I won't embarrass him by mentioning his name. But that's the way AA works, you see. And I told him that night, if you open your mouth once more, I'll break your back. I was not a very gentle alcoholic, you see. Hey. And people used to say about me that I had lost my coot. And I say I agree with that. I never had any to lose, you know. I was always very uncoot. But to come here tonight and see you people, see these young people up here in the front row, it's just beautiful. And to be here at the first convention of San Fernando Valley, wonderful. I'm very privileged. And I'll try to talk very quickly here tonight because I know the time is short. I was born an alcoholic. And to be born an alcoholic is, I think, the most horrible thing that can happen to an individual. And yet when we come into AA, it becomes the most beautiful thing. Because, you see, the garbage in my past should cause no tears in anyone. If I had my life to live over again, for what that I have today, I would do exactly the same and suffer the same way that I did before I arrived here. Because Alcoholics Anonymous has enabled me to be some, come, become so close to my friend upstairs and to become useful and wanted and needed in this world. And my definition of spirituality is a person that is needed and wanted and loved. And when I come here to these conventions, I know that I'm wanted and I know that I'm needed. And I can tell by the look in people's faces that they love me and how good that it is. So I consider myself to be, through Alcoholics Anonymous, a spiritual individual. And the garbage that is in the background of my life, my first life before I knew AA, is a very useful tool for other people to look at. And perhaps, like the one individual that sits here tonight, avoid some of the pitfalls that I fell into.
I was born an alcoholic, and my father was an alcoholic. And there is the beginning of my tale. Because, you see, for the first 12 years of my life, I suffered nothing but ungrounded and unfounded fear. And every time my father came home drunk, I went down and hid behind the boiler because I was terrified of him. And when he sobered up, I loved him just like I loved, like a boy should love his father. But there was always one doubt in my mind. Will what he tell me be true? Will he stop drinking? And I used to be so happy when he would sober up and I would go and tell my mother, Mommy's sober and he's going to be all right. Don't fight anymore, please. And she would say, all right, Jack, we'll see. And two weeks later, my father would come home drunk and I would be dashed again, don't you see, down behind the boiler crying. I was a strange kid. I was one of nine children. And the other eight kids in the house never bothered with my father or my mother. Nothing seemed to bother them. They were very normal kids. They went to school and they ate and they slept and they fought and they played games. They grew up. But you see me, I was different. I was always a round block in a square hole. And while they were sleeping in their beds, I was sitting in the kitchen between my mother and father trying to keep them from hurting each other while he was drinking. And I remember those nights. I remember them good. I remember sitting and hoping that he would fall asleep in a chair. And I was hoping that she would not say something to upset him some more. And I know what an alcoholic is, and I understand Al-Anon. And I understand Alateen, too. Because as yet, I was not an alcoholic. But you see, things change. When I talk about the disease of alcoholism, I talk about a real, genuine, bona fide disease. It's not just something to say that Alcoholics Anonymous has invented so that the alcoholic can come here and hide behind the disease. No, not true. We suffer from a very real physical disease, and it affects us in a manner that it affected me. It filled me with an unholy terror of what I don't know, ungrounded, unfounded fear the first and foremost manifestation of the disease of alcoholism. I brought some pieces of paper with me tonight. It's called Speaking of Your Health, the Disease of Alcoholism, and you'll find them on both ends of the platform. It's by Lester Coleman, M.D., and it's reprinted from a Philadelphia newspaper. It's not supposed to be reprinted, of course, but what the hell can they do to me? I mean... It says, alcoholism is an actual physical illness sometimes described as an allergy because it reflects a lack of, uh, reflects a lack of tolerance to alcohol. It is not a mental illness. And bouts of excessive drinking commonly produce personality changes in the alcoholic, which are too often mistaken as mental illness. And it goes on to say that the alcoholic differs from other drinkers not by the amount of alcohol he drinks, but by his body's chemical reaction to it. It goes on further to say that the alcoholic may not want to drink, but he cannot control the impelling drive and perhaps the chemical need for the sustenance of alcohol. There is no cure. The only effective treatment is total and permanent abstinence. And it goes on further to say that 
The members of Alcoholics Anonymous are standing by at all times, waiting for the alcoholic to come into AA so that they can help these people in their tortuous struggle to regain strength and health and dignity as human beings. Now that's the whole picture of the disease of alcoholism. And it's very important, very important that people understand what their disease is. Very urgent. Because you see, I thought when I came into AA that I was some kind of a mental case. And it was urgent for me to understand the disease and I understand it quite well. And I see people come into AA, they're around three or four years and they don't understand yet that they are sick people. And that it's not a question of them that they shouldn't drink. It's simply a question that with their physical body they just damn well can't drink. That's it, period. Now, I didn't know these things as a kid. All I knew that I had a sick father. I thought that he was some kind of a bum or some kind of a moral degenerate and there was no AA. And when I went to school, I used to be so ashamed. Because I always sat with my brother's shoes and my brother's pants. And I never had a bicycle. I never had a pair of skates. And I always knew what the trouble was. And I knew why that my mother always cried into our apron when my father was drunk. And my heart went out to that woman so. And I loved her very dearly. And I learned how to hate my father because of his drinking. I learned definitely how to hate. And when my cousins used to come in with drink and whiskey or wine or beer, whatever it happened to be, and my father would take his first drink, I knew the inevitable result, trouble. I knew that my father and alcohol was trouble. And I cursed my cousins and I cursed my father's friends for bringing it into the house. And yet, I stand here tonight and I tell you that my name is Jack and I'm an alcoholic. And there is no earthly reason for me to stand here. None. Because I hated alcohol. And I hated people that drank. And I saw what it did to my mother. And I watched her arguing with the landlord, pleading for her not to throw us out into the street. And I watched her putting pork chops or meat onto the table and not eating herself. Because there was not enough food to go around with an alcoholic husband and she would never eat. And it was the things that I knew. But what other reason could there possibly be for me to stand here and tell you that I'm an alcoholic? There is no earthly reason except one, that I suffer from a disease over which that I have no control. None. My mother died of cancer at a very early age. And she never shook her fist at the sky and cursed God because he saw fit to inflict her with the disease of cancer. But you see, he inflicted me with the disease of alcoholism, and I cursed him. I cursed him every day that I lived after I became an alcoholic. Because I thought he had played a dirty trick on me, don't you see? I never ever wanted to be like my father. I never ever wanted to hurt my mother. And I always said that when I grew up, and if I ever had children, they would know a good home. And they would have a bicycle and they would have skates. And that my icebox or refrigerator would never be empty. There would always be food in it. And they would never worry about a new pair of shoes. 
But this was not to be, because I am an alcoholic, and I was born that way. And I have no control further than that over it. And I say, thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I say, thank God for all the people that sit here tonight sober. I can just picture in my mind's eye why the man upstairs would be so good to give to Bill Wilson what was needed to put this program together. The understanding that was given to Bill Wilson by a very loving higher power some 40 years ago in Akron, Ohio. I can understand it. I can understand it really good why the man upstairs would reach down and give to a certain select group of sick people, alcoholics, when he gave nothing to anyone else. When you have cancer, you die. When you have diabetes, you live with it. You do the best that you can. The doctors help you. But when you're an alcoholic, there is no help. None. And until 40 years ago, and back 3,000 years, there was no help for the alcoholic. Nowhere in this world. And I stand here tonight without fear of contradiction. Without any fear of contradiction whatsoever. And I will tell you this that there is still no help anywhere but in AA for the alcoholic. Nowhere. And Bill Wilson told us so very plainly, money is not the answer. Medicine is not the answer. Science is not the answer. And religion is not the answer. And he said it loud and he said it clear, as you heard there in the fifth chapter of the big book. But there is one answer, and that's the higher power. And may you find him now. And that is what works here. That is why that we are miracles. Do you know that for 3,000 years, think of all the alcoholics that were born and died alcoholic without any faith, without any hope. No reason for living whatsoever. Because once you were given the tag of helpless, hopeless, chronic alcoholic, and that was it. It was like having cancer of the stomach or cancer of the lungs or both. There was no hope. Nothing. Now I say this. There is hope. There is hope. AA is here. AA was born 40 years ago. And for 3,000 years, can you imagine how many prayers and how many entreaties went up to a higher power or God as I choose to call him? Help my mother. Help my brother. Help my sister. Help my neighbor. Help my wife. Help my husband. I think that the higher power must have given death from listening to them all. And one day he decided, well, I will do something for these people. And I think I know why, too, that he chose us, alcoholics, to be the recipients of his goodness. Because of the little people that we hurt, the children. I believe that with all my heart. Because if I think now in my mind's eye and I look out here at all you people, and how happy that your children must be, that you're in AA, and how their lives are changing, and how they're growing up straight and strong and not warped. And then I think of you people 
and myself included, drunk, what a tragedy that it would be. And how many little people then would be hurt again, don't you see? So I believe that the higher power gave us AA in order for us to protect little children and take care of them, you see, as they are supposed to be taken care of. 3,000 years ago, the Chinese gave a perfect description of the disease of alcoholism. 3,000 years ago, in the earliest recorded history, we find a description. And it says that the man takes a drink, and then a drink takes a drink, and then a drink takes the man. And that's a description of alcoholism at 3,000 years old. So this short 40 years that AA has been in existence is really a drop in a bucket. But look at what miracles it has wrought. And I say this, reach out your hand and touch your neighbor and you've touched the miracle. Because until then, there was no hope for the alcoholic. I picked up my first drink at age 12. I was in a bedroom with my stupid brother. And my brother knows he's stupid and I know he's stupid and we get along really fine. He is just a plain dope, that's all. And we were in the bedroom because my father was on another drunk. And things in the home had disintegrated to the point where I wouldn't even speak to my father. I wouldn't speak to the rest of the family. I was one of those round blocks in a square hole. When I went to school, I sat in the back of the room. I wouldn't open my face. If I knew the answer, I wouldn't say it because I didn't like to be laughed at. And everybody laughed at me. I was over the clown. I did everything wrong. And up until that time, the only thing and only advice anyone had for me was to be like your brother. Be like your brother and you'll be all right. This was my older brother, not the dope. And my older brother was a very nice fellow. And he went to school and he got good marks and he spoke very nicely. He always hung his clothes up. He always put one shoe next to the other. He even stopped in church sometimes on Wednesdays. And for me to be like him, alcoholic that I was, impossible. So I hated him too, don't you see? I used to be like my brother. I couldn't be like my brother, so I hated him. Well, this particular day, my dummy brother and I were in the bedroom. And my mother told us to get in there and be quiet. Maybe it wouldn't be too bad this time. But I was looking down the throat of another long weekend, wondering what was going to happen this time. I had a big knot of fear in my belly, you know. And my brother went under the bed and he come up and he said, Hey, Jack, look what I found. A bottle of wine. I said, You know what you could do with it. I had no more interest in a bottle of wine than I had in flying on TWA. None. I wouldn't mind if I flew on American Airlines, you know, because it's such a relief. They serve you a cup of coffee and they got a big AA on a cup, you know. Very reassuring, very reassuring. My brother said he opened the bottle and he smelled it. He said, you know, it smells good. Do you want to try it? I said, hell no. And he said, I think I will. I said, go ahead, stupid. So he tried it. And he said, oh, boy, Jack, that's good. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, it's good. It's sweet. And I said, well, uh, I looked at him for a little bit, don't you see? I wanted to see if he fell down or anything. 
Well, he didn't fall down, nothing. And he kept telling me how sweet that it was. I said, well, give me that here. Let me see what it's all about. And I took my first drink of wine in the bedroom, age 12, and my brother was 10. And the minute that went down my throat and into my stomach, I knew relief. I knew relief from ungrounded and unfounded fear. Because the knot in my belly disappeared, I straightened up and I said, my God, that's wonderful stuff. No wonder the old man's always sipping on it, you know. And then I said to my brother, why don't you have another one, Joe? He said, yeah, I think I will. And he had another one. He said, oh, boy, that's sweet. And I said, you damn fool, see. He was talking about what that had tasted like. And I took my second drink. I said, it's a miracle. And I said, if the Lord made anything better than that, he must have keep it up there for himself. And I believed it. Because now I could be like my brother, don't you see? I could be like everybody else. And I looked at that bottle and I said, that's pure magic. And I said to my brother, let's have another one. He said, no, if you drink any more, you're going to get sick. And I said, you're out of your stupid mind. And I took my third one. And you know something? The next thing that I remember, it was Sunday morning. And my mother was bending over me and she was crying very bitterly. And she told me, she said, Jack, Jack, what are you doing? What have you done to me? And I sat up in bed like a scared deer. And I had that big knot in my stomach of remorse. I knew I had done something. I couldn't figure out what that it was. And I said, Mom, please stop crying. Tell me what I did. And she said, you drink almost three quarters of a gallon of wine. And then I told you to take a bath, and you tried, and you almost drowned in a bathtub because you collapsed. And I looked at her, and I was amazed. And she said, it's Sunday morning, Jack. Get up and go to church. And she said, please promise me that you won't never do that again. She said, one in this family is enough. I can't take two. And I said, if you'll only stop crying, I'll never drink another drop in my life. And I promised her and I convinced her that what that I was saying was true. And I was lying. I was lying. Because, you know, I remembered that relief that had came to my stomach. And I remembered the feeling of well-being I had with that quick drink. And if St. Peter would have stood next to me, I would have lied to him too. Because now I had gotten a taste I had gotten a taste of relief. Not wine, not whiskey, not beer. I had gotten a taste of what it was to feel good for the first time in 12 years. I never felt good. I always felt poorly. I always felt frightened. I always felt afraid. I always felt different. I always felt inferior. But with a little wine, I was 10 foot tall and I could do anything. I could be just like my brother. Well, I want to tell you something. I was an Irish Catholic, and I was an altar boy. And if you're wondering how did you get wine at 12 years of age, all you have to do is be an altar boy and an Irish Catholic. And I got the early mass, and I went there at a quarter after five for the six o'clock mass. And I would go into the sacristy, and I would clean up the sacristy, and I would polish off a few drinks of wine, and I could go to school 
and I could talk just like anybody else. And I could answer questions. I used to tell a nun, Sister, why don't you sit down in my seat and I'll take over the class today. And everybody was amazed at the transformation in stupid Jack. The quiet one. Now I was just equal to everybody in this world. I had a little wine in the sacristy in the morning. But you see, I had problems even then. Because I used to run into alcoholic priests. And they used to get their quarter to five. And that was a bad day. And then I would go to school like Denny the Dunce. And I'd sit in the back of it again and ask me a question. I couldn't answer it no more. And that was my life. From that day on, that was my life. I didn't drink because I liked the taste of it. I didn't drink because it was the thing to do. I drank because it made my inferior body, the chemical body that I was suffering the disease of alcoholism, it relieved me, and I could live, and I could be like anybody else in this world. Well, like the Chinese said, you know, man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes the man. When I was 16 years of age, my mother came home from early morning shopping and found me in the house after being out all night. And I sat at a table across from my father at Kaysenen. And I was half drunk. And I had a bottle of whiskey. And I had a roll of stolen money. And I had a revolver, 38. And I was telling my father that if he touched one of my dollars or one of my drinks, I would blow the top of his head right off. I was but 16 years of age. Progression of the disease of alcoholism. How did I get involved in nonsense such as that? Very simple. You see, I never had a new pair of shoes, never had a skates, never had a bicycle, never had a new pair of pants. And my father worked like a horse. He was a steam fitter. And when he worked, he went out early in the morning, came home late at night exhausted, and fall into a bed and sleep and do the same thing the next day. And my mother would have to go to a butcher and she would have to count nickels to feed nine children. So I came to the conclusion very early in life that work was for horses and fools. And I must admit that sometimes I feel the same way today, you know. <laughs> but it's the comparison that gets to me, don't you see? So I found what I wanted in this world. I found an easy buck, somebody else's. And if I had a 38 or a 32 revolver in my hand, I was king. I could do anything. And that's just exactly what that I did. Anything. And I don't stand here and tell you that I'm proud, you know, of the things that I did. I'm not. But it happened to me, and it happened to me in a very easy, gentle way, because the alcoholic is the last one to know, and as long as I had a dollar, that was all that was important to me, and I didn't care where the dollar came from, and I heard an awful lot of people in this world. 
I've hurt people very seriously. You see, I ran with a mob on the east side of New York, on the west side of New York, I should say, and they were very nasty people. And I was the wheelman for a mob, and I used to drive a car at 90 and 95 and 100 miles an hour with weighted down fenders, and I used to lead many, many cops on police on wild goose chases because they could never catch me. They could never catch me because of that souped-up automobile, weights in the fenders. I have watched police cars try to take the same curve that I would, and they never made it and went off into the woods, into the highway, and crashed. I've been shot. I've been stabbed. I have shot people, and I'm not proud. All I can say to you the one saving thing that I can say to you in defense of the life that I led. I was suffering from a disease over which that I had no control. And it's like the good doctor said here in this piece of paper, too many times mistaken as mental illness, but the alcoholic returns to sobriety, the craziness disappears. Well, you see, when I went to bed, no matter where that it was, how long that I slept, I would wake up. I was always a 12-year-old scared kid. I would sit and I would wake up in the morning and I would feel for my gun and I would smell it. And I would feel in my pockets for money. And then I would sit on the end of a bed and I would cry. And I would cry inside, mostly, sometimes outside, too. And I would sit there, and I would cry, and I would shudder, and I would curse myself, because I never, ever wanted to do what that I was doing. And then necessarily, to bury the 12-year-old scared kid, I would reach under my bed, and I always had a bottle. That was my only relief. And I would take a drink and I would bury that 12-year-old scared kid. And with that first drink, I would be able to go out and do the same thing the next night that I had done the night before. So I lived a life like a yo-yo, up and down, a madman at night, bashing people over the bridge of the nose with a gun after stealing their money, sticking a gun into a man's belly and laughing at him, when he showed the fear and his mouth would fall open with horror. And I can still see in my mind's eye many nights when I wake up in the middle of the night and I relive one of these moments, don't you see? Now I sit on the end of my bed and I think back and I see guys with blood coming out of the corner of his eyes and me standing laughing at him. And it's like I look at two other people. And it's the nights that I sit on a bed and I don't no more cry, but I sit and I thank God for AA and the 12 steps of AA that enable me to change my life and to be able to come here and stand and talk to you people and be an example of what Alcoholics Anonymous can do, not me. By myself, I am completely helpless and hopeless. And if it weren't for this program and a very ever-loving, gentle, higher power who saw fit to draw me back from my own grave, 
I would be useless or nothing because I was hated and I was despised wherever that I went. And the progression of alcohol is a tremendous thing. And I say that too, that here in AA we have a progression of sobriety. And that's why we must ever always be mindful of the 12 steps and put them into our life to the best of our ability and the name of the game is change. If I were the same individual that came into AA 29 years ago, I would cut my throat. I couldn't stand the stink of me. But you see, AA and the 12 steps enabled me to do what doctors and scientists and ministers and priests could not do. They gave me my life back in the center of my hand and told me, hang on, hang on to your sponsor and do exactly that he tells you and you'll be all right and things will get better. And I had faith enough to believe and that's what I came tonight to tell that one individual. If I can do it, you can damn well do it too. If I can do it, anybody can do it. And I would say at this point that if you have enough guts that you can move a mountain with a spoon. If you have enough guts and enough courage and enough stamina to at least try. You see, I thought that my life always would be money and fast living and fast cars. But the man takes a drink and the drink takes a drink and the drink takes the man. I came down from a morning in a hotel room one day after a night on the outside sticking up a nightclub. And I came down with my usual fears and not knowing what had gone on the night before. And I started to put the night together. And I started to put the night together by asking stupid questions, you know. And I was with a rough bunch of people. And I came down, and you can picture it. Here's the wheelman, the driver of the car, coming down asking everybody, how did it go last night? <laughs> well, I don't blame them for being a little shook up, you know. And he said to me, Jack, you know, uh, you drove the car, you ought to know. And I said, well, I was a little busy last night. And they told me that day, they said, you know why don't we call you what we do? My name was Crazy Jack, the Umbriago. Umbriago, just in case you don't know what it means, is Italian. And it means drunkard. Crazy Jack the drunkard. Give him a drink and see what he'll do next. And that's the way that it was. And he told me that day, he said, Jack, we think that maybe you were having a little trouble with alcohol. And he said, you know, my friend, uh, it would be a tragedy one night that instead of taking us home, you took us to a police station, you know. And I had to agree with them. I had to agree with them, so that was the first time that I lost a, a job on account of alcohol. Yes. I hate to break into that again, but there's three cars out here that they are prepared to tow away unless you want to move them. License number 881KJD. YPC 192 and 4877JE.
if they tore him away soon. Supreme Court has decided that it's illegal to tow another person's car. I lost my first job and I went out on my own. And I figured I was going to whip the world, you know. I have a long police record. I've been arrested over 125 times. I've done time in two state prisons. Not too much but enough. I could never ever make a move on my own. And you know people all along the way tried to help me. Social workers, priests, ministers, doctors, everybody tried to help me. They would come into wherever I happened to be and they would say, Jack, you are too nice and young fella, you know, to be locked up here. And I would say, well, you know, that's the way it happened. You win a few and you lose a few. They would say, yeah, but you've been losing them right steady for a long time. And I had to admit that was true, but I would always say, well, when I get out, you know, things will be different. I'll make a good score and I'll be all right. And they would say, but we want to help you. And I would say, well, how do you want to help me? And they all had the same story. Stop drinking and we can help you. And the moment that they said, stop drinking, I would say, get the hell out of here and leave me alone. Because I couldn't stop drinking. Who needed to be a 12-year-old scared kid? And that's all that I was when I didn't drink. So I would just chase them and I went my merry way and I had a lot of trouble. I had a lot of trouble because, you know, uh, it was catching up with me and I didn't see it. You know, I knew one time in Baltimore where there was a big payroll and a cash checking outfit on a Friday. And I said, I'll go down there and I'll knock that one off, see. And I did. The only problem was that I got there on Thursday. And all I got was about 40 bucks out of the register, you know. And then I went another time in Philadelphia. And I knew where there was a mob that ran an afternoon game, you know, behind the bar. And I said, I'll stick that joint up. They can't holler too much. They're illegal too, see. So I went down there and I lined everybody up against the wall and I emptied about 40 guys out of everything. They had watches, rings, everything. And I said, now if you stick your face out of the door for the next 20 minutes, I'll blow a hole right in the top of your head. And I left and I laughed, you know. But if you've never been in Philadelphia, don't go. Don't go. It's a bad town, I tell you. It's all one-way streets. And I got in my car, stolen car that it was, and I took off very nicely. had a big brown paper bag with all the loot in it, and I was laughing to myself. And I went up to the corner with a one-way street. I made the right turn, you know. And I went and another turn, another one-way street. And about five minutes later, I was coming back past the same joint. And there was a big fat cop standing in the middle of the street. And he said, all right, get that car out of here. We just had a stick-up. And I said, oh, my. And I took off. And I went up to the corner. And I went around the corner. And we started the Moonway Street again. And as far as I know, that car is still sitting there. Because I got out and a big shot from New York made his getaway on a trolley car. See? Yeah. 
It's laughable. It's laughable. But I want to tell you, it was not laughable to me because I knew there was something wrong. I knew just as sure as God made little apples that something was wrong. I never ever wanted to be that way. I never wanted to do the things that I was doing. But every time that I would look at that 12-year-old scared kid in the morning, I would say, no, I can't be like that. And I would go back and do some more and go down a little deeper. I'll make a long story short. I got married. I had a very lovely, naive wife. She thought that my friends were very fine people. She loved to go out to nightclubs and she loved to go dancing. She never knew that when I took her home after a night out, that I would go up on 8th Avenue up to the Greek joints. I would gamble all night and drink all night. About 2 o'clock the next afternoon, I would be poured into a bed somewhere. She never knew the things that I was doing after I left her. She thought I was a nice guy, you know. A little erratic, but nice. A lot of fun. Daryl of fun. And one day we got married. And we got married and I was drunk. And she thought that it was quite funny to be drunk at your own wedding, you know. And I was just in a normal state. Drunk. Period. That was it. I was drunk all the time. And one day she said to me, about three months after I got married, she said to me, Jack, do you ever work? And I looked at her, I said, you're a lovely kid, you know. You're nice. But don't ever mention that word to me. And I said, as long as you got money, don't mention work. I, uh, you know. Don't ask questions. You're too damn nosy. And then she said, Jack, you know, I used to think that when we went out, you got drunk, it was all right because you went home and sleep. But now I see that you drink around the clock. When do you ever sober up? And I told her, I said, well, when I married you, I was drunk. You had no complaints. Why not? You want to change me. She had no answer. And then we had a little boy, you see. And then she started talking about me going to work and me doing this and me doing that. I had to get away from her. I had to get away. She was getting too near the truth. And I couldn't let nobody see me. And I hated to get up in the morning and run in the bathroom, reach in the toilet tank and pull out a bottle of booze and take a drink and sneak it. I couldn't do that, you see. And every time I felt guilty, I'd take a drink in front of her, I would die. I didn't want nobody to know that what my brother had said was true. I was more like my father every day. Only I had passed my father like he's standing still. My father never hurt anybody. It was a rough day. And that day at 16, when my mother turned around and took me by the back of the neck and my bottle of whiskey and my stolen money and my gun and threw me out of the house and told me, don't come back. And she preferred him over me because she told me, she said, he's never hurt anybody but you. You hurt everybody you ever come in contact with. Now here I was with my wife and married and with a little boy. And my wife was looking at me the same way. So I left and I went to sea. And I got hurt. And I got hurt pretty badly. I got torpedoed three times. And I never ever wanted to go home. Never. I used to meet my wife somewhere away and 
New York or New Jersey and drink all night and I'd leave the next day, you know, I would never stay home. Now I was forced to come home. I spent three months in a hospital recovering. And when I was taken out of the hospital, I was put into a Red Cross ambulance and taken home and deposited in Brooklyn on my wife's doorstep. Now I knew that my secret was out. And I went upstairs to an apartment I had never been in. And I told my wife, give me a drink. And she said, Jack, I don't have anything to drink. I live here with my son and I don't have anything. I said, well, you better hurry up and get some. Go downstairs and get a bottle and come back. And when she came back with the bottle, I told her, I said, now, take that kid. Take him over to your mother's and stay there till I call you. He makes too damn much noise. He's always crying. And I sat in Brooklyn, and I looked out of the bedroom window, and I drink. Because I didn't know what else to do. And I drank around the clock. And when one bottle was true, I would reach out and I would get another one. And one day she came up to me and she was crying and she said, Jack, I can't take no more. She said, you're killing yourself with booze. And I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to help you. And I said, you're just like everybody else in this whole world. You won't leave me alone. I said, I've told you a thousand times. I can't stop drinking. When I stop drinking, I'm nothing. I have to drink in order to live. Don't you understand that? And I say, you want to snatch my booze away from me. Everybody wants to take my booze. And my booze is my only friend. Why don't you leave me be? And she said, it's not true. I'm your friend. I say, you're nothing to me. Nothing. All you are is a big millstone around my neck. With your crying and with your screaming and howling all the time about you and why don't you just leave me? And she said, I can't. You're my husband. And she said, my father, my son here needs a father and you're it. And she said, I'm going to help you whether you want me to or not. I said, you do and I'll kill you. Stay away from me. Leave me be. Well, she helped me. One day she came back and she gave me the big book of AA and I threw it through the window. And I told her, I said, if you come near me again with that stuff, I'll throw you through the window. Keep away from me. Just leave me be. That was my cry. Leave me alone. I can handle it myself. And I was convinced that one day, somehow, I was going to find a way to drink. And I was going to be able to take two drinks and go home, just like my brother. That's all that I wanted to do. I couldn't leave it alone completely because I needed the relief in my stomach. I needed to be like other people, so I had to drink. Well, one day I went out. She wouldn't bring me any more booze in, and I had to go out. And I went out, and I went to my favorite bar, and I asked for a drink, and the man almost died. He said, Jack, get out of my bar. And I said, what's wrong with you? And he said, I'll tell you what's wrong with me. Your wife was here this morning. And she told me that if I even give you one drink today, that she's going to set fire to my bar tonight. And I said, she had gone berserk. She's gone crazy. I went to a delicatessen. She had been there too. I couldn't even get a can of beer. Nothing. 
she shut me off all over Brooklyn. And I went home and I said, I'm going to kill you. And she said, wait just a minute. Before that you kill me, what is it that you want? And I said, you know damn well what I want. I need a drink. I'm dying. She said, do you need a drink? I'll buy you a drink. And I said to her, I said, who do you want killed? Because she wouldn't buy me a drink, I don't think. And I said, impossible. She said, no. If you want a drink, I'll buy you a drink. But will you go to New York with me? Well, now that was a big trip to New York from Brooklyn to Manhattan. You had to get on the subway underground. I wasn't ready for that, you know. And I said, that's a pretty rough bit. And she said, if you want to drink bad enough, you'll go. I said, okay, I'll go. So I got on the subway for a drink. And I went to New York, and I was in such bad shape when I got there, she said, I better buy you another one. So she bought me another one. And I said, now what happens? She said, now we're going into that church over there. And I said, no, not me. I don't go in that church. That's a Protestant church, and I'm an Irish Catholic. And she said, you are a drunken bum. And you haven't been in any church for over 20 years, and you promised me, and you better go. So I went. And I said, what is it all about? She said, it's AA. They're going to help you. I said, oh, another one of those things. I said, okay. So I came into a room, and it was an idiot up here like I am up here tonight. And, you know, I sat in the back, and I said, hurry up and help me because I'm very shaky. And, you know, this guy started talking, and I said, listen, I said, oh, boy, listen to this nonsense. Then he got the one point in his story, and I couldn't tolerate it. You know what he said? Don't take the first drink, and you won't get drunk. And I said, you son of a bitch. If I get close enough to you, I'll kill you. And I give my wife a jab in the ribs. I said, I knew that in Brooklyn. I didn't have to come here to hear that. And I got out of there just before the cops arrived. I broke up the meeting. And I said to my wife on the sidewalk, if ever I step foot in another AA meeting, I will be dead. And you know something? I almost made it. <laughs> I missed the job by a scant hair of being dead when I came back. See, I left there that day and my wife drew the line. She said, all right, big shot. I've tried everything. Everything. Now she says, I have two kids. I have two children now. And a little girl. And she said, they are going to live. And you, if you are not an alcoholic then you better start performing as a husband. And the first time that you step over the line, watch me, because I'm going to straighten you out. And I laughed. I said, you you scare me. Something terrible. I said, you wouldn't do that to me, would you? And she said, watch me. I said, how come that you're so changed, you know? She said, well, I had a good teacher. All the rotten, filthy things that I know you taught me. And she said, now, I'm going to straighten you out, Jack, and you best believe it. And I laughed. 
but I didn't laugh too long. Because I came home a couple of three days later, I thought, and there was two cops sitting in my apartment. Now, if there's any cops here tonight, peace. <laughs> I am an honorary policeman in six states, and I got badges to prove it, so I'm with you fellas. <laughs> And if you start any trouble, I might lock you up. <laughs> I came home and these two cops were sitting in my apartment and I said, what do you do here? I didn't say that, of course, you know, but there's too many people here tonight. And I said, uh, this is my castle. And I don't like you people, so get out. And they wouldn't go. So I threw them. They were there because my wife had called them. It seems I had come home the night before. And I was strangling her. I thought I was fighting a war again, don't you see? And she showed me the marks on the throat. And I said, ah, oh, that's between you and me, not them. Out. They wouldn't go. So I threw them out. And they got reinforcements, and they came back. And then they threw me out. And they did it in a very unique manner. They put handcuffs on me, and they said, we're going in. And I said, okay. And I said, but why don't you first give me a little chance, you know, to straighten you out? And they didn't like that idea, and they knocked me down. Well, while I was down, they grabbed me by my heels, and they dragged me down by my heels from the sixth floor. And we had marble steps, and my head hit every step on the way down. And when we got down the bottom, they said to me, are you still a tough guy? And I said, yeah, even more so now. And they said to me, well, what do you want to do about it? And I said, well, take these handcuffs off for just five minutes, and I'll be very happy fellow. And they did. And we went out in the back of that building, and we went round and round. And I remember getting clubbed to the ground, and I remember getting up, and I remember getting bounced off walls, and I remember getting in a few good licks. And then I remember, too, at one point where a big sergeant was kneeling on my chest and holding me. And he was almost crying. And he said, please, kid, don't get up no more. If you get up, we're going to have to kill you. And I said, that's right. That's what you're going to have to do. Because you can't do that to me, see. And I got up again, and I got knocked down again. And the next thing you know, I was laying on a table in a straitjacket in Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, and I had a fractured skull, and all my ribs were caved in, and I had stitches in every part of my body, and five fingers on my right hand were broken. My boat jaws were wired together, and I couldn't see out of my eyes. And I had a big lump of blood at the back of my throat. And I couldn't spit it out because my jaws were wired together. And I lay there and I cried. And I was 12 years old and I was scared. And I said, my God, what am I doing? And I said, if I ever get out of here, I go drink no more. That's it. I've had it. 
And they let me out at a respectable period of time, 20 days, 25 days. And I went home at night because I was so ashamed. And I sat down in the kitchen and my wife said to me, Jack, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to drink no more. And I sat in the living room then, in a corner, and if my little boy dropped a toy, I would scream because I was consumed with fear. And if the telephone rang, I would die. If someone knocked on a door, I would hide in the bedroom. And I couldn't go out in the street even to buy cigarettes in the daytime because somebody might see me. And I used to sneak around in the middle of the night. And I was 12 years old, and I was a vegetable. And I sat till I couldn't sit no more. And I told her one day, I said, Roz, I said, give me a dollar, please. And she said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to go down the corner, I'll be honest with you, and I'm going to get one drink, just one, so that I can live. I could go out, and I could get a job, I, could, I can't sit here no more. It's impossible. So she gave me the dollar very reluctantly, and she said, remember now, one. And I said, that's all. Do you think I want some more of that? I said, no more. And I went down the corner full of good intentions, going to have one drink and then go to New York and get a job. And I stood in that bar and I said, give me a drink. And the man gave me a drink. And I took that drink and I threw it in my mouth and the relief came. And it was beautiful. I was no more afraid. But with that drink came something else. It was like somebody turned a key in my head. And insanity took over again with one drink. And I started to think, and my head was still shaved where I had had my skull put back together. And my hands were still stiff from being busted. And my jaw still ached. And I said, them cops that beat on me, maybe I'll find them. I'll straighten them out. I took another drink, and I looked for the cops. And I found them. And would you believe? I found them cops twelve times. Twelve times. The same exact procedure, twelve times. Beat half to death, stuffed into a straitjacket, put into the loony bin, and wake up more dead than alive and say, Oh my God, not again. Yeah. Twelve times. I'm blind in my left eye from the beatings I took. I don't hear a sound on the left side of my head. Sometimes my head gets so painful that it's pitiful. I have a radio in my right ear, and it's a very convenient bit. Somebody talks at me too much, I just shut it off, and they don't know the difference. I've had almost every body, bone in my body broken. My jaws have been wired together so many times that it's pitiful. I've had my teeth kicked up into the roof of my mouth, and they lay there for years and got rotted. And you know something? I would stand up to people and say, alcohol is my friend. The only friend I got. Don't take that away from me. That's all that I got. The twelfth time that I was released, 
two detectives met me and carried me to a police court. And my wife and infant daughter and my son stood there waiting on me. And the judge read me a piece of paper, and I thought he was talking about three other people. And it said that this man is a homicidal maniac, and he might wipe his family out overnight and not know he did it. It said this man will never ever work a day more in his life. And it said this man is suffering from wet brain and beatings. And it said that this man cannot tell the difference between right and wrong. And it is highly recommended that he be removed from his home for the protection of his family. And I turned to my wife and I asked her, I said, is that what you want? She said, yeah, that's what I want. And she said, I got some news for you, bum. She said, I'm going to raise my kids in spite of you. And they're mine now. The judge gave them to me. And she said, if you stick your rotten, filthy face in my home where I'm raising my kids, I'll kill you. She said, I'll stick a knife in your belly while you're sleeping, but I'll promise you I'll kill you. Because my kids are going to have a chance to live, and you have done nothing but hurt us from the first moment that we met. So stay away from us and keep away, or you're going to have more trouble than you ever thought possible. I was taken out of that court, and I was put on a train to New York and told not to come back to Brooklyn. Never heard of anybody getting thrown out of Brooklyn before. I went to New York, and I was full of big ideas, you know. I was going to get a gun and make a couple of scores to go down on Mulberry Street, and I was going to come back from the Turkish bath, and she would love me like she always did. No, not true. Alcoholic. Robert Burns once said, The greatest gift that God could give me is that I see myself as others see me. The alcoholic cannot see himself as others see him. So I went to New York and I wound up on the Bowery. And I lived on the Bowery in New York for two and a half years, summer and winter. And I never would go into a mission to ask for a bowl of soup because I was too proud. And I would pick butts up off the floor and I would smoke them before I asked for a cigarette. And I lay in the snow and in the rain and I cursed God. And I cursed my mother and I cursed my wife and I cursed my father and I cursed my children. Because if it weren't for my children, my wife would have tolerated me for more. And I cursed everybody that came within 20 feet of me. And I had body lice, and I fell down subway stairs, and I woke up with blood all over my head and didn't even know where that I came from. And I never hurt. I was beyond hurting. All I was was a zombie walking around the streets muttering and cursing God for what he had done to me. And it was this apparition that went into a bar one morning or afternoon, I don't know mumbling, raving, idiot. And I went into a bar to take my morning drink, or my drink when I woke up, to bury me again, and it only took just a little bit. And I drank smoke and painted alcohol. I drank anything that had alcohol in it. 
And I went into this filthy, dirty bar into the bathroom because I always threw up the first one. And I went into this bar this particular day and I threw up three or four and I threw up half my stomach with the fifth one. And I was so weak from not eating, from not living. I fell down on my hands and knees and I hooked my chin on a toilet bowl. And I literally watched myself running down a toilet bowl. And it was at that point that I looked at the bottle in my hand and I said, why do I fight? That is my trouble. And I threw the bottle over my shoulder and I said, I may as well die and be the way that I am. And I lay there and I waited for death. My friend upstairs watches alcoholics and he protects alcoholics and he protects alcoholics and damn fools and children. I lay there dying and my friend upstairs watched me and he said to himself possibly maybe now and he's very gentle and why people should be afraid of him I don't know. I don't know. Because he stands there ready to help any time that you have for it. And this particular day, he did me a tremendous favor. He started putting pictures in front of my eyes as I lay there in a coma, hanging on a toilet bowl, waiting for death. And I saw pictures of my wife and my kids, saw pictures of good times, saw places I had been, and then one picture I thought I couldn't understand. It was like I was in a light looking down. Whole bunch of people milling about talking, nicely dressed, smiling, and drinking coffee. And all of a sudden, like a boat out of the blue, it hit me what that it was. That AA meeting I had been at those years before. And I said, oh my God, how stupid that you are. You had it in the palm of your hand, that was the answer, and you threw it away. And I remember sobbing and bleeding at the same time. And I lay there and I didn't know what to do. And from somewhere, had to be the higher power, no one else, came the urge and the feeling that maybe, maybe possibly, it was not too late. And I crawled out of there, out of that bathroom, some six or seven hours later onto the sidewalk and I stopped people and I begged them please call AA for me and I was full of blood and I had hair down here and full of body life and I had one half of one sneak on one foot and a bottomless sock on the other and I begged people please call AA and in order for them to understand what I was saying, they had to get up real close to me because my mouth was so busted up and right, it was actually infected. And some kind soul, and I don't know who, said, okay, I'll do that. You sit there and don't go away and I'll call AA for you. And I sat and I sat on my hands trying to keep my head and my body together and not wander off. Because I was a zombie and the doctors were right. My brain was damaged and I couldn't remember one thing to the one minute to the next. And I said, sit here, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. And these people come back and told me, they're coming, don't move, stay there, they'll be here. And I'm here in the heart. One alcoholic 
looking at another alcoholic and understanding. And with that understanding comes the transference of faith because he knows and he instills this one with the faith. And I said to him, are you sure? And he said, I'm sure. I know. You come with me and Gene, and you don't have to drink no more, and everything's going to be all right. Now I want to ask you, three very fine doctors had given me five years to live. I was pushing five years then. And this little Jewish man stood up in front of me and told me, no, don't worry about it. I know better. What did he know that they didn't know? What did he know? He knew that this is a God-given and God-inspired program. That's what he knew. That's what they didn't understand in their books. Who was right? I'm here. Sam Cohn knew what he was talking about. And you know, I don't have anything against doctors, but two of them three are dead. Yeah. And the third guy, he is not doing good. And every time I see him, I say, Doc, why don't you take care of yourself? Look at you. And here I am flying all around this damn country. TWA, United, AA, all of them. And loving every minute of it. Because I'm here to tell you that AA works. And if there's anybody here thinks AA don't work, you meet me out in the parking lot after the meeting. <laughs> See, I came to AA bankrupt in every department. No mind, no body, no spirituality. I was not wanted, I was not needed, I was not loved. And the moment that I stepped into AA, my life began to change. They sat me down and they said, oh boy, look at them. And I said, ooh, they understand. And I found what I was seeking all my life in the bottom of a bottle. Somebody not to chase me. Somebody not to say, Had no home, had no room, had nothing. Nobody ever gave me any money. Nobody ever gave me nothing. I didn't want it. All I wanted to do was to be allowed to sit at an AA meeting. I felt so good. Here were my people. So I sat. And they used to laugh and they used to joke and people used to say to me, Hey Jack, how did you like that meeting? And I would say, Oh, that's a good meeting. And they would say, who spoke? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't remember. Couldn't remember who spoke. So they would say to me, well, that's all right. You keep coming back. And then one day they told me that I was wanted. And I said, what for? They said, we need a dishwasher. So I started to wash the dishes in a very lovely church. We had, you know, regular cups, but we didn't have them for long. Not with me washing dishes. <laughs> And then we got paper cups, and nobody ever threw me out. They said, look at him go. He washed his dishes good. And I did. Because now you see, I was somebody. I was counted. And then one day, Sam said to me, Jack, you know we love you. And I said, Sam, where I come from, men don't love men. 
And I said, you're not one of them funny guys, are you? And he said, no, we love you because you're an alcoholic. Oh, how nice that is. Think about that just a little bit. We love you because you're an alcoholic. They didn't love me in spite of my being one, but because I was one. How nice. And then they said, Jack, you're wanted, you're needed, and you're loved, and you're helping a lot of people. And I said, who do I help? I don't help anybody. They said, yeah, you do. And he said, every time that we get new people in, Jack, we sit them next to you, and we tell them to watch you, and if they keep drinking, they're going to get like you. Huh? Are you helping a lot of people? And I was so happy. See, I was becoming spiritual and didn't know it. Wanted, needed, and loved. And then one day I remembered who spoke at a meeting. And another day I remembered a little more. And finally, you know, I was sober two years. And they took me out to speak. <laughs> he shut up since. <laughs> they took me out to speak and I spoke. And One day my wife came to a meeting and she was looking for me. It was most amazing. I was afraid. I told Sam, I said, get her, Sam, and see what she's got. She's trouble. And he said, no, she don't want to hurt you. And you know what she wanted? She said, Jack, you have a little room and you pay for it. Why don't you come home and sleep on a couch in the living room and give me what you pay for the room because I'm not doing too good with money for the kids. So I said, okay, I do that. So I came home and I thought my cup was running over. I slept on the couch and I watched the kids go to school. I didn't interfere. I didn't talk or nothing. Just that I was so happy to be near my children. And one day, you know, she started making improper advances to me. Yeah. She said, isn't that couch getting a little hard? And I said, no. No. See, the use and abuse of alcohol, what it will do to you. And when she said the next thing, I ran up to the Holy Mountain in New York. I had a monk friend up there, and I said to him, hey, you know, that woman is making noise like a wife again. Well, he said, oh, Jack, that's good. He said, go home. I said, how the hell do you know it's good? You're a monk. <laughs> ah. So I went home anyway, and it was hard. Big grown man, right? And I remember what that it was like. And I say I hope that God never ever lets me forget what that it was like. Because I had a daughter and I had a son. And my son used to follow me around the house and used to pick up my glasses and show me where this was and my tools. I was... And you know I had hurt my hand pretty badly and I couldn't hold a knife. And my little daughter used to jump up on my lap when I sat down to eat. She'd say, come on, Pop, we can do it. And she would put a knife in my hand and squeeze my hand together, and together we used to cut my meat. She said, see, if you try, you could do it. Yeah. And when the kids went to bed, my wife would take me down the basement, and she'd say, all right, stupid, come on. And down the basement we would go, and we had a big mirror. 
and we would sit in front of the mirror and she would say, okay, now say this word, and now say that word, because I had to learn how to speak, you see. Yeah, I know what it's like. And I know what it's like one day that when my wife told me that she said I'm pregnant again. And I know what it's like because now I have three children. And I know what it was like all the time that I was so happy. And my wife was converted. And I went back to church. And I was married on the altar. And right after the marriage ceremony, my two children were baptized. And that night I came back to that same church and I went to my AA meeting. Yeah, I know what that it is. I can understand anything because my life is so full. My little son just graduated from college in Pennsylvania. He was a National Merit Scholarship winner. And his mother died while he was in college. And I will never forget the day, a very sudden blow. And I remember in January, just past now, four years ago. I remember the night that she died. And I was home and I wasn't supposed to be, but my friend upstairs kept me home. I was supposed to be in Texas and I didn't go. And I remember going to bed quite upset. And I remember what she said to me. She said, Jack, you look so, so upset. I wish I could do something for you. And I said, you can. Go to sleep and wake me up tomorrow so I'll catch the plane. I had postponed it a day. And that night at 1 o'clock, she started to call out to me. And I slept in across the hall. And it's a God only knows that the wonder that I heard her because I didn't have my ear in. But I came out of a coma and I heard somebody calling me, Jack, help. And I found her behind the door dying. And I took her down, I put her in the ambulance, sent her to the hospital and I followed her. And I called the doctor so he'd be there. And I never saw her alive again. And that morning at five o'clock I come out into the yard of the hospital and I had taken no shirt with me and it was 12 degrees and it was cold. And I felt nothing, I was numb. And I asked my friend upstairs, I said, what do you do to me now, you know? And the answer came back very quickly, I don't do nothing to you, Jack. He said, I gave you that woman back for 24 years. You have another son. You have everything that one man could want. Now I've called the home. Do you begrudge me that? Do you begrudge her that? And of course, AA has taught me I can't fault the higher power. He knows what he does. So I went down to college and I picked up my son and on the way home he said to me, Hey, Pop, you think you got it pretty good now with the man upstairs and you know you're in. And I said, Yeah, that's right, John. He sits on my shoulder. He says, Where do you see what happens now? She's up there telling him what to do. Yeah. So my boy is graduating, he works in New York. He don't call me too often, only when he wants money. My daughter is married, made me a grandfather. 
And then I have my oldest son who used to come to the hospital when I was locked up and waved to his father between the bars. My father was an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. And my oldest son is an alcoholic. And for 16 years, he's been tearing his life apart. And he's been on skid rows, and he's been in hospitals, and he's been beaten, and he's been in prison. And he's done all the things that his father did. And his mother said to me one day, she said to me, why does your friend up there give me two? You were enough, now I got him. I said, I don't know, you better ask him. I don't know why. I can't answer why. But I'll tell you one thing, Roz, I told her. I said, A.A. is here when he wants it. And it's guys like me and guys like me all over the country. No matter where he goes, he can find A.A. if he wants it. And if he don't want it, he can go and die in a gutter, just like anybody. Because this is a program that I can't force on anyone. And I said, you had best accept it. My friend upstairs knows what that he's doing. And he has put A.A. here. And if Joseph wants it, Joseph can have it any time that he does want it. So I have done all that I can do. And the only thing that I can do is pray that while I'm talking here, somebody in New York is talking at him. And that maybe one day he'll come into AA and get sober too. I don't know. But I am not Christ. All I can do is tell you what I did and hope that maybe you might do the same. Because I'll guarantee you, I have faith enough for everybody sitting in this room because of the miracles that my eyes have seen and the miracles that I've touched. I have watched dead men walk. I have watched scared, frightened children come out and be in the sun once more because of AA. And this is where it's at. And if you want what I got, then you do what I did. Wake like hell and get it, and don't let nobody keep you from it. And if somebody on the outside says to you, Hey, buddy, I got a better way to do it, punch him in his mouth because he's a liar. And he would steal your life from you. And if some doctor comes up with a pill that says this is going to be it, forget about it. We have had those guys by the dozen for the past 25 years that I know about. Turn your life and will over to the care of God as you understand them. Put the steps into your life. Get to know you and the job that you have to do, and then do the job with the fourth and fifth step. And when the results are all in, and you stand back and look, you will look at another individual that used to be you, and you now will be in AA. And practice these principles in all your affairs. I walk like I talk. I walk exactly like I talk. And I see people in AA that talk one way and walk another. And I don't understand it. I don't understand it at all. Because I or you might be the last sermon or the last sermon that the alcoholic might see. So at any time, day or night, I try to be an example of what AA is supposed to be. I take the prayer of St. Francis and I try to use it to the best of my ability. And I say that I'm not trying to be a saint. I'm only telling you one thing. 
And I'm so grateful for what the guy upstairs has given me that I wish that all of you could have the same. If you have, God bless you. And if you haven't, you can have it very simply. I'm afraid I've talked too long. And I'm very sorry. I always say that. And I'm not a damn bit sorry. I woke up this morning and I put my feet on the floor and I tried to remember where that I was. And the first thought that came to me, your name is Jack Brennan, stupid. You're an alcoholic. And I said, oh yeah, and I'm at a convention. And I said, I must have my friend upstairs because here is another day. And I said my little prayer, and it's called a secret, and it's on some cards here and here, because I won't move from my bed, and I won't light a cigarette, and I won't have a cup of coffee until I let my friend upstairs know that I'm awake and ready to go. And it says the secret. It says I meet my God in the morning when my day is at its best. And his presence comes like sunrise, like a glory in my breast. And all day long that presence lingers, and all day long he stays with me. And I sail in perfect calmness o'er a very troubled sea. So I think I know the secret learned from many a troubled way. You must seek him in the morning if you want him throughout the day. And when I have that prayer out, I know that my day is going to be a good one. And I would invite you all, have a card, join me tomorrow morning, start your day right, if you care to. And I will say no more now, and I'm going to get down out of here. I want to thank the group for having me here, for paying my expenses down and whatnot. And I want to leave you all with a little blessing. And I hope that next year you might have 2,000 or 4,500, I don't know how many, but double what you have here. And I would say one little word to here. The meeting in Palm Springs that I spoke at a couple of times, a fellow by the name of Maury Scanlon runs it. Maury Scanlon is very sick. I've only heard that tonight. And it's a terrible thing for me personally because I like Maury I didn't agree with him in a lot of ways had a few harsh words with him a couple of three times but he's my friend and he's extremely sick so I would say that when you say your prayers tonight maybe you remember another sick suffering alcoholic who needs a prayer. I would like to leave you with a little blessing. May the roads rise with you, and may the wind always be at your back, and may the sun gently warm your face, and the rain softly fall on your fields. And until we meet again, may the good Lord hold us all in the hollow of his hand. Thank you, and God bless you.